Los Angeles has a particular neighborhood, known officially as Central City East. The district is more commonly known as Skid Row. The population is just under 5,000. It is comprised in part of prostitutes, drug addicts, thieves, rapists, and the mentally ill. But amidst this motley population is also an extraordinary photographer named Mark Later. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 oh. trouble in America. Today's conversation includes graphic content that is not suitable for all listeners. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. You know, every chick, you know, they're not cut out to be a good prostitute, you know what I mean? Some of them were just hustlers. Uh, I trained them to peel tricks like a banana. <laughs> Fast money. As soon as I step on the concrete, I'm catching a date for like 300 700, like it just all depends. Actually, I just recently got robbed for $1,100. You can spend all day with a whore, and soon as you run out of money and dope, she's gone to the next. I was with this one girl. I said, what do you do? I do everything. Took me over to a spot. Next thing I know, my car got surrounded. They broke out the windows, ran into a fence. It's doggy dog. I have a female chest developed through hormones, but I also have uh, male genitals down here. If you see the pattern of what's going on, there's several stages of evolution, and I will reach the end stage as a full dragon when I have all my procedures completed. I will be a genderless dragon. That's what dragons are. Holly came from Miami, FLA. Hitchhiked away across USA Plucked her eyebrows on the way Shaved her legs and then he was a she She says, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side Said, hey honey, take a walk on the wild side It is not expected to go to YouTube and amongst the options to see a picture of a man that has half his face blown off. That's what happens when you go to a particular channel which is called Soft White Underbelly. Soft White Underbelly is produced by a man called Mark Later. Let me explain who Mark Later is. He was a photographer from the age of 14, but moreover and more significantly, uh, he grew up to be a professional photographer working for advertisers of great renown and success. So he's done work for Apple Corporation, for BMW, for IBM, etc. And the list goes on the length of one's arm. But he is also the producer of the YouTube channel Soft White Underbelly that features people in America who are not often heard 
Although he maintains a studio in Manhattan and a studio in Los Angeles, he has worked extensively in Skid Row. But he has also done work across America in the 48 contiguous states. The show that he worked on was originally called Lower 48, and it produced a book which was called Created Equal. In fact, he wrote two other books, C-S-E-A and Serpentine, his most recent book. But most will know him from his very disturbing and impacting an incredibly effective channel, again, called Soft White Underbelly. It is my great pleasure to welcome to Watching America, Mark Later. Thank you, Alan. Um, you started with photography, you tell us, at the age of 14. Uh, you grew up in Chicago, is that correct? Mm-hmm. I was born in Detroit, but then at, uh, I think, 10 years old, moved to Chicago. And I still consider myself a Chicagoan, even though I've been living in L.A. for, for decades now. Okay, White Sox or Cubs? Of Detroit, Detroit Tigers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm a Tigers fan, but I love my Bears. My okay. Bears. Well, what were your parents like? I always like to know people's point of origin. That's a great question. Um, both my parents are Lithuanian, and my mom was born in Lithuania. My dad was born in Chicago, but then moved to Lithuania during like the depression, the end of the Depression, and then moved back to Chicago, or actually moved back to Detroit. That's where they uh, they met and uh, had me and my sister eventually, and uh, you know we grew up in Detroit and then Chicago. And I left Chicago and moved to L.A. when I was 26. But my parents, uh, my mom just passed away recently. I'm sorry. They were, they were married forever, mm. obviously. And uh, my dad's 91, I believe now. Mm. So, um, you know, my childhood, <laughs> unlike a lot of the people I interview, was pretty great. It wasn't perfect. You know, my, my dad and I butted heads a lot when I was younger, but but no longer. And uh, my mom was like, <laughs> like I could do, do no wrong <clears throat> in her eyes. And that was... That, to me, is about as good as it gets for for a kid. I'm not trying to compound your pain, but I remember when my mother died, and I've spoken to many people about the same experience, one has this peculiar feeling of being left on the planet. Um, they depart, we remain. And it, it causes us to look at things differently. Have you found that to be true? No, honestly. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit I was super close with my mom, very, very close. And she passed away... Uh, at the very end of January, and I honestly believe I've, I've been burying myself in this project, which I which I do anyway. That's my nature. Mm-hmm. When I work, I work like a maniac. But I've been so busy with this project that I almost haven't had time to grieve. I haven't allowed myself to. So right. it's it's like it's like I'm just protecting myself from it. Understand? Well, you know that's that's a, a, an interesting thing because. People in this realm who deal with it, counselors and what have you, say there is no right way to grieve. We all do it differently and, and, and how we want to. That doesn't mean that that's any measure of your in, indifference, as you say, or lack of love for your mother. It's oh, just, no, not at all. It's, it's, your, it's, it's the opposite. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's your coping mechanism. Okay, yeah. well, um, at that momentous moment when somebody placed a camera in your hands, I should explain that I'm also a communications professor. I teach uh, cinematography and filmmaking, and I've taught photography, still photography. Oh, and I always ask my students, when was the first time somebody placed a camera in your hand? Now, today, of course, everyone has that as a phone, so all the kids right. today will have had it. Do you remember when somebody placed a camera in your hands for the first time? Yeah, as, as a kid, I was always drawing and painting. Like, uh-huh. That's all I did. And at one point, I picked up a camera, my dad's 35-millimeter camera, and I started taking some photos of, of little, like, of similar things to what I did with my still-life career when I was an advertising photographer like leaves and flowers and, and animals. And and I just took to it instantly. I just loved photography. I loved how it was part a scientific document of whatever you pointed your camera at, 
And then it could also be an artistic interpretation of that. It was, it was art, but it was also science at the same, at the same time. And I loved that. And I never put, never put the camera down ever again. So was it a progression of, you know, going from a brownie to a Nikon, a Canon to a Leica? I mean, was no, it no, fast? No, I mean, it, it was, uh, what was it? I think it was a Kawa Flex, <laughs> my dad's camera that I borrowed. Uh-huh. And, and he just let me have it. And then at one point, this is one of the most important things that ever happened to me. Uh, I had a cheap Canon camera, I think. I can't even remember what kind of camera I had, but but I was it was very clear that I was serious about photography. And my my dad took me to Helix Camera, which is the, the big camera store in Chicago at the time. Mm-hmm. And you know the salesman is showing me the the cheaper cameras, the A1 and the this whatever, and that's what I kind of figured that that'll work. That does the trick for me. Yes. And my dad goes, you know, he looked at all the the whole range, and there was a, there was the F1, which was the you know the the top of the line, the Cadillac of of yes. Canon cameras, and then there were all the cheaper ones, and I was happy with the cheapest one. And my dad goes, you're serious about this, right? <sighs> Sorry, I get emotional. And I go, yeah, yeah. He goes, let's get the F1. Wow. Wow. <laughs> what a gift. I mean, in more ways than one. What a gift to have a father with that insight. It makes you take, it makes you respect what you're doing. It makes you take it very seriously. Yes. And you put more belief and energy behind it. You, you take it seriously. And, and that, was, that, was, that was a big deal. Do you think you were intended, if one has a, a sense of, of destiny, you may not, but do you think you were always somehow intended to be a photographer? No, no, I, I just think it's what you're, you know, I'm, I'm not big on that kind of thinking. I, I just mm-hmm. think, you know, I'm, I'm very visual. I've always been very visual. My mom was very visual. My mom and I are very similar. And it just, it just, that's, that's, that's the way I'm wired. And I, I could be wired to be a mathematician or a, or a, or whatever. I mean, I've always kind of understood this on some level, but I heard uh, Richard Branson from Virgin mm-hmm. talking about uh, career choices, trying to figure out what you want to do with your life. And he said, I'm paraphrasing, but I think he said, you, you make four lists. One is everything you're good at, make a list of everything you're bad at, make a list of everything you love, and a fourth list of everything you hate. If you look at that list, it'll tell you exactly what, what to do. And wow. I realized, especially with this project, with the wow. uh, soft underbelly's portraits and, and interviews I'm doing, it's exactly that. Well, let's, <laughs> well, let's, let's start with that. Let's, let's talk about that uh, specifically. Um, one of the things that sh- strikes me is that to do this kind of work, and I have to remind the audience, we have said this at the outset, I will say it now because it bears repeating. At the outset of this program, you heard our senior producer Gina Gamboni warned the audience that this material may not be suitable for everyone. Some of you may think that we are speaking strictly of children or sensitive persons. We're speaking of adults too. So we're going to go into areas and territory that many people might find um, unsettling. And so we say that with some forewarning for those of you who may not want to go where we are going to go in this particular program. Mark, you uh, have spoken just a little while ago about the, the kind of distancing that you need to do sometimes emotionally. Uh, you throw yourself into projects to be able to get things done and to yep. kind of keep emotions at bay. Uh, there's a curiosity in, I think, uh, a similarity by you having to take somewhat the same approach to your work. So just to remind people who are just joining us, I'm speaking with Mark later. He um, has a channel on YouTube 
which is very disturbing for some people, enlightening for others, but hopefully motivated uh, uh, for the purpose of helping to change society, if not the lives depicted, then future generations. Uh, he has interviewed typically people in Skid Row and elsewhere who are uh, prostitutes, sex workers, pimps, alcoholics, people who are addicted to heroin, various forms of heroin, people who have been sexually abused, people who have been victimized, people with rather aberrant and unusual views such as KKK, Grand Wizards. Um, the array is far more uh, uh, widespread than people might suspect just looking at just one hand of, of the channel. You are dealing with people whose lives are predominantly, for the most part, wrecked. How did you start to come up with the idea of inviting people into your studio, putting a, a light box up with soft diffuse lighting, shooting straight on, and then from a three-quarter angle from the side and making these videos? Um, I, I, I've always been doing portraits. I mean, even, even when I was like a teenager back in Chicago, I would go down to the uh, Chicago's equivalent of Skid Row in Los Angeles, um, west side of, near west side of Chicago, where you would have all the the homeless alcoholics at the time just sitting on the street, and it was it was fascinating. You know, growing up in the suburbs and and coming from a you know a middle class family where everything was you know our, our home life was normal and and you know no traumatic events, no craziness, and I, I would see these homeless guys and I was just like, wow, this is what a different world, and I was fascinated by it, and I would do portraits of them, and and throughout my career I kind of played with that. I would I would do my advertising work, which was very slick and polished, and and I'm making you know iPhones or or computers or cars or cosmetics look really great, but I always had this other side of me that I loved, which was my fascination with these these darker subjects, and they're usually people. Um, and Create Equal, my first book, was exactly that. I, I decided to go to every state in each, each of the lower 48 states and, and do portraits of everything from cowboys to astronauts to uh, polygamists to <laughs> repo men to everything you can imagine. You know, And, and so that, that was... That was the beginning of, of Soft White Underbelly. And so I, I, after Soft, after Create Equal ended, after that book was published and uh, we had some shows, and it was kind of like, okay, that's, let's close the door on that. I didn't know quite what my next move would be with my personal work. Advertising was still continuing. I was still going full bore with that. But uh, my personal work, I, I just didn't know quite what to do. And, I, and I, I thought, you know, the Skid Row down in L.A. is very interesting. And it's right here, not too far from where I live in my studio in L.A. And uh, I got another studio just to shoot portraits of people on Skid Row. And I did that for a while. I did that for years. Uh, started in 2010. And got some really interesting subjects, but they were just portraits. And, and that's what Create Equal is. Create Equal is just a portrait. You don't get to hear the person. You don't, you don't get to hear their life story. You don't get to know anything about them. Your imagination can fill in those blanks. But but sometimes you're just guessing at what the what the story is, and then at, at some point, Canon, the Canon, the camera company, came out with a, with a cameras that did video on the, as well as still photography, and and I had one of these cameras, and I, I just started to shoot a a video or two, a, an interview of of some of the people that I was photographing that I got to know, and I did an interview with a, a heroin addict prostitute named Caroline, and it was the most heartbreaking thing ever, like wow, that was powerful. I just got lucky that first time, I thought. And then I did a second one with somebody else, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth. And I'm like, Jesus, there's a lot of interesting stories here. And I should have just continued with that. But 
<laughs> I, I got divorced and, and just my life got turned upside down a bit and I put it down for a while. You, know, you turn the clock forward. I'm currently building a house and I had to put all my furniture and, and, and my, uh, my, all, all my belongings basically in storage units. I had four different storage units across the city of L.A. And I'm, and I'm like, why am I paying all this rent uh, storage unit rent? You know, I, I should get a one big storage unit, store all my furniture in one place and and maybe have a studio up front to shoot. And if that was down in Skid Row, it would be like killing two birds with one stone. So I looked around in Skid Row and I found a really great place. It's right in the middle of the action, which is which is good and bad. It's good in that people will walk right by and feel very free to just like step in for a moment, make a little bit of money and tell their story. And they free, they feel free to walk right out. They don't have to go upstairs. They don't have to go up an elevator. They don't feel trapped at all. And uh, I started that around March of 2019. And I enjoyed it so much, I just kept with it. And it just kept going and kept going. And it was like, the more I did it, the more I enjoyed it, and the more I felt like I was onto something. And uh, I remember when I first started putting the videos up on YouTube, I said, no, no one's going to watch this. You know, I, I put them up on YouTube just to kind of show my friends, have a, have a way to show like some friends some crazy videos that I shot. And I thought, literally, I'll, I'll get... I'll get 20 or 30 people subscribing to this craziness. And uh, it grew and it grew and it grew. <laughs> and next thing I know, I had, you know, very quickly now, I've, I'm, I think it's like a million, 1.3 million now. So it, it took off. You have been the recipient of some criticism. I'll, I'll mention the first one. Uh, and I, I don't do this with Glee, but just, just to be, you know, fair about the, the, the yeah. issues you've braced. Um, the first one is that, in general, you're exploiting people. You pay uh, people who are sleeping on the sidewalk in tents 20 or $40 to get them to speak to you. People who evidently are slightly more endangered by revealing who they are because they have pimps controlling them and what have you, you'll pay as much as $100. Um, no, no. <laughs> your, your, your numbers are inaccurate. But Oh, okay. All right. Well, yeah. What are the so, accurate I mean, numbers? Like, like a, a pimp is not going to admit to human trafficking on a platform like YouTube for for $500. He's just not, he's not a fool. Okay. So, you know, and, and, and a guy who, who frequents prostitutes and is married is not going to come on my channel and talk about exactly what he does for a little bit of money. They're just not, it's going to cost a lot of money. <laughs> so you so have to, are we talking K's here or hundreds? I don't want to give up my numbers, but it's a lot more than people anticipate okay. or All right. imagine. So the argument, the, the argument that's made, Mark, though, is that, that you're paying people to uh, divulge things about their life and they sign a waiver. You've heard this before. It's not new. And they sign a waiver uh, of disclosure. Yep. And the argument that's made by some, although there are others who rally to your, to your defense, I hasten to add, um, they will say, well, you know, he's just benefiting from people talking about their lurid experiences and people vicariously um, getting a thrill out of hearing about other people's misery. And there are others who, as I've said, rallied to your fence and said, no, he's actually conveying dignity to these people by paying them and saying, you know, look, your time is valuable um, and I'm, you could be turning a trick in a car or in a tent or something, but I'm going to pay you for your time uh, as well. So how do you respond to the criticism? Well, there's a lot of things I could say about that. One is that first, of, let me let me preface the whole thing with like, you know, is Christmas a celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, or is it a marketing opportunity for retailers? Both. It's both. Everything is both. Are, are hotels exploiting the fact that you need sleep tonight? They're exploiting you because you need sleep tonight, or they're just a nice place to stay. So it really has a lot to do with your perspective. If you want to see somebody is doing something evil and dark, then you can see this as exploitive for sure. Absolutely. 
photography and storytelling, but just the nature of those is, is exploitive. <laughs> it just is. There's no way to take a photo of somebody. You're exploiting a pretty girl when you're putting her in a, a cosmetics ad. Right. And you're, in turn, I have to say that someone could accuse us of exploiting you about exploiting other people. Yeah, I mean, and so it goes. Ex, ex, exploiting, exploiting somebody is, is just like it's, it's Shelby Lee Adams is a photographer that does uh, portraits of Appalachian people, where I think where he grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's a fine art photographer. You know, he got accused of some similar kind of things. I heard him say once, the reason people will see this as exploitive is because they're so, the majority of the people watching my channel or looking at his work are probably middle class or upper class people. And it's so disconcerting, so disturbing, so un, unsettling to look at this stuff that you want to blame somebody. It's right. too much to process. The, the human mind can't go, wow, this is really horrible. This is terrible that this exists in our world. You, the human mind can't process it all. So you want to blame somebody. And the easy target is the photographer that shot it. <laughs> it's just like, there he is. Blame him. He's exploiting these people. End of story. <laughs> Absolutely, and, yeah. And that's, 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 a, that's a very knee-jerk, simplistic reaction. And I get it. But the people that I interview, every single one of them, virtually every single one, maybe with a couple exceptions out of 2,000 people I've, I've interviewed, um, love it. And they want to come back and do a second time or a third time or a fourth time. And they, they, they view me as like some kind of therapist angel down it's there. It's cathartic. And they, and they, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's, it's so many of the people I've interviewed said they've never shared these stories with anyone. Mm. And I, I mean, I've, I've had a handful of people that came up to me and said, you know, I haven't used my drugs since I've talked to you. That was the best thing I ever did. When can I do it again? <laughs> they, they don't even want to be paid the second time. They just want to come back. Well, before we go much further, I'd like to play a clip so the audience can get at least more of a taste of exactly okay. what's going on. So um, the first person which I alluded to at the at the outset of this uh, show today was this very arresting image of uh, Jerry, who has uh, half his face blown off. He has one remaining eye, which doesn't function fully. Um, they've basically, the surgeons, uh, through you know 24-hour periods of surgery, we are told, um, basically reformed skin. He works aerospace company coming home from work at a bus stop and he didn't even know he didn't see anything happen he just next thing you know he woke up three months later in a hospital wow but somebody walked up to him with a shotgun point blank and just shot him in the side of the head well let's uh, let's hear him speak and also at the same time it's interesting a part of the clip i want to show is that he doesn't seem to have directed animosity or hatred amazingly um let's play that clip here we go i was sitting at a bus stop going home from work one night a couple months later, I woke up in the hospital. I thought I was dreaming. The doctor told me that I was shot in the side of the head with a shotgun. And he said, the only reason I survived, because it was point blank range. He said, it was not point blank range, my head would be out of the streets. And see, I, I can't see that guy's his left eye. My nose, I cannot smell or breathe at all. And the, the skin here, you see, your brains was hanging out, to, out your head like a nine old kid, hanging out my face. And then let's remove it. I'm going to tell you something else. I haven't looked at myself over two years. Things happen. I just got to accept that, you know, and keep moving on. That was uh, quite astonishing to hear. It's very difficult sometimes to understand him. You do use subtitles uh, uh, or captioning uh, captioning under your uh, videos, but uh, we use clips that we hope the audience could could grasp. How yeah, did, you're, how you're, did you meet him? It's a little bit difficult to understand. How did you meet him? Um, I, Jerry Pan, was panhandling. Uh, right, right near, right on the, right on the edge of Skid Row at the at the Flower Mart, 
So that in Los Angeles, they have this big area that's nothing but uh, wholesalers selling to florist shops. And, and the, the general public can go there on certain days and, and buy flowers for weddings or, or whatever they want. And Jerry uh, would, would panhandle there. He would just sit there with a tin can and, and shake, it, shake the money in his can, and people would give him money. And it was the first time I saw him, I was just like, Jesus, this is the saddest thing I've ever seen. And when you approached him and spoke to him, was he receptive? I mean, oh, very friendly. Yeah. No. In fact, I when I first walked out to him, I told him what I was doing, and he said, "Yeah, sure. You want? Let's go right now." I said, "Come on." And I took him to my studio, and we talked in the car, and we got very. He's very friendly. He's, yes. he's just delightful to talk to, and and he's a really sweet man. I super mean, sweet. Yeah. I mean, like 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 it's it's like he, he and I like I show up, and he just wants to talk basketball. He wants he loves to talk about NBA basketball. Yes. And. He's just the friendliest, kindest person you have ever met. You can feel it when you're just in his, in his presence. So, Mark, I have to ask you about the technical aspect. So you've got him in your studio. This is one of your first interviews early on back in the day. Uh, okay. you, you've got, you know, uh, your diffusion set up and you decide to shoot him. Did you feel awkward or perhaps not? Uh, I mean, you, one doesn't have to feel this way. Did you feel awkward at, if there was ever a moment you felt I might be exploiting someone, if at all you entertained that idea? No. I would imagine that Jerry would be the case with half his face missing. No, that that, that thought has never ever entered my brain. Okay. All right. <laughs> you know, one thing I learned, I mean, this is, this is interesting. Uh, I was doing portraits in, in New York City. Uh, I used to do them in, in all over the country for Create Equal, but then after that, I, I just started doing more and more. I, did, I was doing them in Manhattan once. And I was with my assistant, Axel, who has worked with me for decades. And I was just picking up every all kinds of interesting people in Manhattan. And then Manhattan has tons of interesting characters on the street, right? And I would I would pick up whoever just was interesting walking down the street and ask them what I'm telling what I'm doing. And almost everyone would come upstairs with me up to the sixth floor of a building on Broadway and in, in, uh, near uh, Union Square. My assistant goes, "It's amazing how everybody trusts you. Mm. Like everybody trusts you to come upstairs. All these like like there were there, you know Manhattan has some of the most beautiful women in the world, and I would just she might but have an interesting story. So I would just walk up to her." And, you know, if I, was a, if I was a guy looking to date the girl, I might, you know, there'd be different body language and my voice would get tight or, you know, whatever, you know, things, right, that, yes. things that happen like that. But in this case, because I knew subconsciously my motives were pure. Yes. I, I knew that what I was doing was, was a good thing for her and for me and for everyone. So they read that. People can sense that. Mm. And he says, how are you getting the most beautiful women on the planet to just go up a sixth floor with you? you don't, they don't even know who you are. And you're much bigger than that. I'm six four, so you're much bigger than they are. You could overpower them easily, and they they come up gladly. And I realize that wow, it, what is that? Why, why is it if if I was asking her out on a, for her phone number or something, it would pro- probably play out differently? But because I'm doing this, they just like easily just agree. And I think it's because of that what I just said, which is my I knew that what I'm doing has value. It's not just I'm res- I'm respecting them. Mm. I'm honoring them, mm-hmm. and they can sense that. Right. They can sense that I'm not up to no good. It just flows from there. Well, let's hear a female voice, Pamela, a more certainly more recent person you interviewed. Uh, Pamela is a prostitute. Uh, she reveals that she only went to the seventh grade. She was molested by an uncle. Uh, witnessed a lot of violence. Uh, has at various times had to jump out of vehicles and uh, horrifically saw her friend run over 
And uh, in this clip, she talks about a variety of things. Uh, you ask her about the most unusual type of thing a client has asked her to do, and she uh, she tells us. Uh, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. My guest is Mark Later, and I must remind the audience that this is an extremely mature program, as has been forewarned at the outset of the show by our producer, Gina Gamboni, a senior producer, Gina Gamboni. Um, if you are inclined to find things offensive, um, uh, disturbing, then I would strongly recommend you don't listen to the, the remainder of this program. But here we go now with uh, the voice of Pamela as interviewed by Mark later. 14, I got kidnapped by a pimp. This one guy is crush fetish. He just wanted me to step on a muffin and, you know, smash it in the sidewalk like this. He gave me $800 to do that. And my one of my wife-in-laws got killed, and she got killed, and I found her in the middle of the street dead, and it, like, blew my mind. So when I did heroin, it numbed me. I didn't have to feel the pain. I felt like I was back in my mother's womb. When we went back to pick her up, she was just laying in the middle of the street dead with her head busted open, and, like, every ounce of blood drained out of her body. I've had to jump out of cars um, going 40 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour. I've been beat with clothes hangers. I've never seen my son. Well, I seen him when he was 10 months old and my middle son, 10 days old. And my girl, she was 10 months. Now, some people would say, I understand, I think, why you do it. But some people would say, well, why do you have to ask questions about their daily routine as sex workers? And you say? Um, well, first off, it's interesting. It's an interesting aspect of what they do. I mean, I'm not, insure, I'm not, I'm not interviewing insurance agents talking about how they, you know, shuffle papers and and work numbers all day. I'm, I'm talking with a prostitute, and what they do is, is sometimes. Wait, are you saying double indemnity isn't interesting? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just, I just think these are these are very interesting lifestyles that I'm documenting, and and to not ask those questions kind of leaves the whole thing like, oh, I, anyway, I, I still get people like, oh, I wish you'd ask this or I wish you'd ask that. Yes. And, and at some point, you need to feel out the subject and figure out what you can get away with and what's going to be disrespectful or what's going to make them uneasy. Um, but with Pamela, she was, and, and most people I interview, they're, they're pretty open. And, and it's, it's almost like they've never been asked, they've never shared these things. And be, to be asked in this, in this kind of environment, is willing to share everything. Do you feel ever depressed when you have, say, you know, uh, an, I was going to say young woman, but it's a lot of older women too, who come off the street, they've been servicing customers come right to you, you know, they're drinking a Sprite or whatever it is, they do their interview, and you know they're returning to that world. Do you ever just want to reach out and say, ah, how can I help this person? What can I do? Now, I know that you have actually, by your own estimation, given about $150,000 away and invested in people. Yeah. Um, how do you handle that when, they, when they're going to descend the stairs from your studio and you know they're going to go right back to how they've lived? Yeah, I mean, that, that's the case in almost all, all of the people I've talked to. Um, it's a really difficult situation. And most people, I don't think, could could stomach it. I think it just gets, it can be so draining. And so you, you're just so defeated. And there's nothing you could do to save this person if you wanted to. You would get taken down before they're going to get saved. If I was, if I was totally going to help someone, you know, you end up, you end up, let's say you're going to start paying their rent or giving them money, they're just going to use the excess money for, for whatever their their addiction is. And you have to understand, and, and I learned this in the first like eight years of being down there shooting, 
down on Skid Row, that a lot of these people are not helpable. You can't help them. They're not even willing. They're not interested in, in being helped. Even though they might say it in the interview, you know, like a lot of people say, oh, I just, I just want some help, and I wish somebody would just do this for me and do that. You have to understand that those are words. And it's almost like the way I see it now, because I've, I've taken some of those people. Earlier on, I, I'd be like, oh, my God, you just need this, that, and the other. So I would give them this, that, and the other. And that cost a lot of money. And I realized what I was doing is just enabling them to continue doing what they're doing. How do you differentiate between those who are lying and those who are not? There are some cases, and yeah. it's a very interesting array of videos. Just to remind the audience, you're listening to Watching America. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and Mark Later uh, is my guest. He is a very successful photographer with uh, studios on both coasts, one Manhattan, one L.A., done a lot of commercial uh, work for IBM, um, BMW, for Apple, you name it, he's done it. Uh, High-gloss, high-style photography has been the recipient of awards has had private shows, has written three books, created Equal, C, and Serpentine, and has his own dedicated channel on YouTube, which is called Soft White Underbelly. On those shows, Mark, uh, on, on the segments, you will at sometimes say something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing, um, after years of hearing people speak, um, I've learned to recognize untruths and what have you. And in other persons that speak, you seem to be neutral and not sure and accepting. How do you, how have you learned, or have you learned, in fact, maybe it's a skill that's never developed, to differentiate between the authentic and those who are just simply going for a sympathy uh, narrative? Yeah, it's, it's, sometimes it's, it becomes hard to decipher what is truth and what is made up. And, I, and I'm sure, you know, it's just the nature of telling a story. If you, if you and I were speaking about our old school days and the teacher that was a monster that we had when we were in eighth grade or whatever, back in high school, uh, you embellish those stories and you make the gym teacher seemed more, more evil than he was. And, and the, you know, every, every, everything gets exaggerated a bit. So there's plenty of that going on with these stories, but there have been some where they're just totally concocting stories. And, and I've even been fooled a few times. I put up those stories and then their, their parents contact me or their siblings and say, you know, that's all BS. And I do a little homework and find out that, yes, that that's, that's totally untrue. And I delete the video. Um, there's one or two that I, there's one that I've left up with a ex- explanation saying this is totally a lie. I've spoken to the family. And, That's the one I'm referring to. Yes, uh, Sarah, I think. Yeah, Sarah, right. Um, I lost my daughters and my husband last summer in a house fire. I've never been drunk. Um, my husband got really, you know, he stayed home. He never had a job in his life. He was using drugs. I found out about crystal meth. He was slamming it and actually was slamming it in his neck. When I caught him with drugs and a significant amount of money, I had around 140 thousand in the bank. And I was down to like nine grand. And when I realized this, um, first time ever, he, he was leaving me the longest ever was six days. He left me tied up in the bathroom. And um, he put, he was putting cigarettes out on me. I have over a hundred of them all over my body. I had holes. Some of them took over a year to even heal. My kids this year would have been 20, 18, 15, and 13. So, and they just died last summer. Their father set their beds on fire while they were asleep. And uh, he stabbed me five times and he killed himself. No, I think it actually serves a purpose. If I may, as an outsider, say it, it, it gives perspective and balance. So it's actually um, warranted. Well, when people are signing waivers uh, to allow you to uh, use their imagery, don't you have a, a professional <laughs> problem in that many of these people are using aliases to begin with and yep. they are 
highly spurious, questionable personalities. So how, yeah. do, you, how do you handle that? Well, I mean, uh, I, I try to get IDs, but a lot of these people don't have IDs. Yeah. Um, and you, you just think, if somebody comes back to me and says, oh, this is a problem or whatever, then I'll, I'll take the video down. But that, that's, that's, that's happened like once or twice. Hasn't really hasn't really come up. But but technically, I'm sure there's more than a handful of cases where I'm putting up a video and this model release they signed is not really their real name. And I don't think anybody's ever going to come back to me and say, hey, that's that's not that wasn't me or that, you know, whatever. So. Well, I'm eager to lead uh, leave actually the the idea of people faking you out. But there's one story I have to allude to, which I'm sure you can uh, imagine is Kelly. Do you have contact with your mom or anybody? No. So you're just on your own? I don't have anybody. You have no Nobody but God. That's why I have to sell prostitute so get to get by and, and on the county. That's all I have is the county and my tent and God and, for, and tricks. That's all I have. Nobody checks on me. Nobody calls my government phone. I don't know who my dad is. I just try to be strong because, and I'm just trying to get it together because I, I don't want to be out here for the rest of my life. I really don't. Uh, you received criticism because you had a um, great deal of empathy and sympathy for her and you set up a GoFundMe fund and your intention was not to give her the money uh, to go back to school and to, there was X amount of dollars, which I think was around 9,000 or something like that. No, it ended up being 28,000. It wound up being 28,000. Yeah. And and then there was some soothsayers uh, sitting at home on their couches and their armchairs watching uh, the interview and saying there are things here that don't add up. And then uh, I believe it was the uh, Washington Post got involved and some others have written about this, um, that it was then questionable about your motivations. And then suddenly you were looked at askance with um, uh, disfavor. How did you handle that? And have you fully recovered from that whole episode? Yeah, I mean, my, my little joke is that none of my videos are fully uploaded until some commenter says they're, they're lies. <laughs> they're, they're a lie. <laughs> it's because a prerequisite. Virtually every single video I put up, somebody comments, oh, this person's lying. And the interesting thing about Kelly, her real name is Kiara, but uh, you know, here's what happened. I post a video every day, pretty much, sometimes two a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and Christmas Eve, I was shooting down on Skid Row, and this gang member that I know brought this his girlfriend, I guess, and said, you, you, you want to talk to this girl? And I'm like, oh, I'm not, I was driving away with my equipment. I was leaving for the day. And I'm like, see you later. I'm gone. And he goes, no, no, no. You, you, you talk to this girl. I look at her and she looks like she's 12 years old. And I'm like, all right. So I pull over and she tells me her story a little bit, just to give me a 30 second version. And I'm like, okay, let me, let me back up and I'll set up again and we'll, we'll, I'll shoot one more. And it turned out to be this really heartbreaking story. One of the, one of the most powerful on my channel, I would, I would say. And I edited it that night, and I put it up on Christmas Day. I wasn't going to put anything on Christmas Day because my, my content is so dark. I just figured it wasn't appropriate. But her story was it was certainly dark, but it was kind of like, I don't know, beautiful at the same time. So I put it up on Christmas Day, the morning, and it initially got a really strong reaction. People were heartbroken over her story. And then she calls me back a f- like four or five days later and says, you know, can you take it down? My family's giving me a hard time. And I'm like, okay, sure. So I deleted her video, <clears throat> even though it was great. And then two more, three, two or three weeks later, she calls me up and says, you know what? Forget my family. My family's never done anything for me. 
they've never been there for me, put the video back up. Just just use my street name. Because originally I posted the video with her real name, which is Kiera. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, use my street name, which is Kelly. So I, I put it up the second time with Kelly. And I got to know this girl by then. I saw that, you know, she was working Figueroa Street, which is the street in Los Angeles where all the prostitutes, I mean, like un- unbelievable <laughs> amount of prostitution going on on that street. You know, so she has a she has the arrest records. You know, all the girls down there know her. So there's no doubt that she was a prostitute. Um, she claims that uh, she never went to high school. But, you know, the, the Washington Post reporter looked up the fact that she had registered for high school. But then Kiara says that she... Uh, she did register for high school, but she never went. She went for like two days and then never, never went. So, and she was in the foster system. She says she was at six years old and the uh, Washington Post said it was five years old. So her parts of her story are, are not 100% proven, but whether she went to high school or didn't doesn't matter whether she was in the foster system at five years old or six years old. doesn't matter. The fact that this girl was working Figaro Street as a prostitute, getting arrested, living that super dangerous lifestyle mm-hmm. and a fairly lucrative lifestyle. I mean, these girls say they make, you know, 500 to $1,000 or more a day, a night. And everyone says they're lying. But, but I, I believe that those numbers aren't, they're exaggerated, I'm sure, but they're not greatly exaggerated. They're not making $75 a night. They're making easily several hundred dollars a night and a lot more for some. She, um, she gave that up. She chose as a 22-year-old girl to give that up and, and just try to start a new life without anyone's help. No family, no nothing, no money. You know, she, yes, she had braces. Yes, she had fingernails. Yes, she had nice clothes because that's what these girls have. They all have that. If you look at all these girls, they all have nice hair and nice clothes and, mm-hmm. and fingernails and all that because they make good money um, tax-free. And so she gave that all up to start a new life at 22 years old without an education. And that's remarkable. And I saw that she was doing this. I saw that she wasn't going back to her old ways after those, after I took the video down and then before I put it back up. So when I decided, when she told me I could put it back up, I said, you know, this person deserves some help. I'm going to try this GoFundMe thing. I had heard about it. And I'm like, I'm going to try my first GoFundMe with, with this girl. So I posted her video with a link to the GoFundMe. And in two days, it generated 28,000, 29, I think. GoFundMe takes a percentage. So $29,000 in two days. It was actually thirty thousand, <laughs> but but what happened is, on that second time the video got uploaded again, it got lots of views and lots of empathetic, compassionate, concerned commenters. As soon as the word got out that her GoFundMe was a wild success, then all of a sudden everything flipped, and all of these comments saying she was lying, it's all made up, it's all whatever. Here's a picture of her mom's Facebook with her and her mom. Here's a picture of her grandmother with her, and it's like you know, it's all a lie, and. You know, she's getting a nice break that no one else is getting, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that created this, all these claims of her story being being fake. Because if, if, if I'd never done a GoFundMe for her, her story is identical to everyone else's on my channel. If you watch all the prostitute videos, they're, they're all basically the same exact story. There's some details that are changed. You know, one worked with a pimp when she was 14 years old, and the other one met a pimp when she was 16. And one... You know, little well, details the, are different. The, the typical scenario seems to be, you know, uh, very often that there's a mother or a father that have substance abuse. There's yep. uh, a, a, a menacing uncle or father that physically abuses them. Yep. They run away. They drink a lot. They do weed. Then they progress to something else. Then they get caught up in the system. They go work for a, a pimp. Then they go into a foster home. Then they're out of there again. I had a personal experience. I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I will right now. 
I, when I lived in San Francisco, I lived there for 11 years, uh, and I came in contact, it was brought to my attention, a young woman who was a prostitute, she was a heroin addict, and um, I was very, very grieved by seeing this. She had track marks and, and everything was working, and she had a pimp. She finally wound up in San Francisco City Hospital, and, and in many locations, you don't want to be in the city hospital. I went and saw her, um, and I said, if... I would to be able to find a way for you to get and be able to kick this. Would you really be willing to do that? And she said, yes. I worked fervently uh, pulling every contact I had in San Francisco, and I m managed to find one of the best cleanup facilities, uh, drug addiction facilities in, in the Bay Area. I got her at the top of the list. I mean, she, they, there was, because of a good reputation I had for various things, I got her at the top of the list. I arranged with another person because I wasn't going to drive her by myself. I arranged with another person to go and pick her up and to take her immediately there for when she was going to be discharged. I went to the hospital. I was elated. I thought, this is it. I'm going to make a change in this girl's life. You probably can anticipate what happened. I got there and she had walked and her pimp had come in early in the wee hours of the morning and escorted her out. Um, it is so disheartening. And that's just one incident. You have had hundreds and hundreds like this. How do you keep going? Well, to me, what I'm doing is not about, I mean, it sounds cold, but I'm not about helping these individuals. I've helped more than my share. You know, as, as you've mentioned, I've spent well over $100,000 helping so-and-so and doing things exactly like what you just described. Um, and that costs money. You, know, you put somebody up in a hotel for a few yeah. months. Yeah. That, that adds up. When you, when you want to get them transportation to go, you know, wherever they're going, the, 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 the money that I bleed doing this is, is insane. It's embarrassing. My accountant goes, what the hell are you doing? Cause I'm not getting receipts for any, you know, <laughs> for most of what I'm doing, there are no receipts. Um, but rather than saying, I'm going to help each and every individual of the 2000 and more that I've, that I've interviewed, I can't do that. One person can't do that. But honestly, what I'm trying to do is, is help people understand, have some awareness and, and see what's really going on and see how these things happen so that we can prevent it for the next generation. I mean, what's that great quote? Uh, it's easier to raise strong children than to repair broken men. Yes. I think it's Frederick Douglass quote. Yes. Good quote. It's a great quote. Yeah. Because you want to fix these people. The, the, the problem is not that they have a drug addiction. <laughs> it looks like, oh, these are people who are drug addicts or they're, or they're uh, sex work addicts or they're uh, gang members or whatever. The, the problem is that they never were loved as children. They've never experienced unconditional love, and that is the problem. Because yes. you fix the addiction, you give them a house, you give them a car, you give them a job, you give them everything they need, and they'll be back to where they started because they still are trying to numb the pain of never being loved. The way to fix that is prevent it from happening to the next generation. When you're dealing with people who are clearly delusional, I'm thinking of Sweet Pea. I'll play a clip from Sweet Pea. That's my first time for having a pimp, a financial advisor or whatever. I give him all my money. Whatever I need, he gives it for me. So, yeah, I wouldn't be doing it at all if I didn't have my pimp or my daddy. Making money is making money. At the end of the day, you look at it. I mean, I'm in love with my pimp. I do love him. Um, she speaks of her pimp as being her financial advisor. Yeah, they all call themselves financial advisors. Is, and, and her pimp is her daddy pimp. Um, mm -hmm. It's very interesting usage of professional lingo for financial advisor and then familiar terminology for her daddy pimp when very often daddy in real life was the problem. Um, do you ever just want to just say to people like, okay, 
listen to what you're saying, sweetheart. Listen to the incongruency of what you're saying. Well, I did, I did that. I usually don't, but I did that a little bit on that interview just because she was so closed off to Reality. being aware of what she was doing and, and, and not looking at. And it's like, <laughs> so I got a little bit judgmental, which I've never really done on my videos, but I kind of did a little bit of that on, on that one just because she's asking for it. She's just like so in denial of anything that she was doing. I mean, she's got a kid. She's addicted to drugs. I think fentanyl, I think it was. Yes. Um, and she's got a pimp that she's been in love with for two weeks and, and he's managing her money, hundred percent of it. And it's like, Oh, come on, <laughs> come on. Everything is wrong here. And I, 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 I think I, I said something kind of indicating that can you not look at this and see it more clearly, but she, you know, she, she can't. I'd like to talk about the artistry, because I think we would be remiss if we don't acknowledge the artistry to what you do. You have a developed an aesthetic. Uh, the opening is we hear street sounds very often, uh, ambient street sounds. Then we hear a voice of the person who's about to be interviewed. Then you dissolve into um, titles, black and white, um, uh, white over black, and then it dissolves again. And then we have a color image of somebody speaking. And then eventually at some strategic point, you would then go to your portrait that you've done. You typically would start at the top with the face and you basically tilt down. Uh, I presume you've taken the picture with a large format camera and yep. then you tilt down so you can get the clarity because you can't do a horizontal plane. But it works, and it's an aesthetic that the viewer comes to expect. Did that come innately to you, or is it something you, you no, premeditated? I mean, it's really just a terrible compromise, because I'm shooting these very vertical portraits. Yes. You know, I, I had a 9 by 13 inch camera, custom-made, so it would basically accommodate the shape of a human body, the dimensions, you know, the yes, height right. versus the width. And there is no way on social media, which is our new world now, to display a, a tall a, a tall vertical. Yes. You know, Instagram is basically square and so is everything else. And, and YouTube is horizontal. And since I'm doing video uh, interviews now, the videos, those are horizontal. So it's like, how do you fit a, a long, a, a kind of almost extremely long vertical into a horizontal format? Right. You just don't put it sideways. <laughs> so the best thing I can come up with is this terrible compromise where I pan down the, the portrait and it's, it's, I cringe every time I do it, but there is no other way. But I think there's a good effect to it because very often, I mean, I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm just being realistic as you are. Very often you'll see significant details as, as you begin to tilt down, you begin to notice uh, scabs and cuts <laughs> and dirty I mean, toenails. The, 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 and the, the, the idea, the, the, the concept behind anklets. all of this is yeah. to have like a, and these are shot in such a large form, a large resolution that, yes. you know, my, my idea was to print like 12 or 15 foot tall portraits in a, in a gigantic space and then have a large TV monitor playing the video alongside that giant portrait. So the portrait is really the star. The portrait is what these are really all about. And the video is just a supplement to the portrait. But I think what people have gotten used to on YouTube is the interviews, everything, and the, the portrait's disposable. You don't even have to look at it. I've, heard, I've seen people comment, like, what was that stupid portrait in there for? <laughs> it's like, so to me, it's, it's really about the portrait. And, and the video is just kind of like a backstory to the portrait. You did a, a, a self-disclosure video. In fact, you may have done two, but I've certainly seen one where you explain what the, the whole premise behind Soft White Underbelly is. Yeah. I noticed that you seemed uncomfortable, Mark, if I may point it out, looking into the camera directly. You would do it sporadically, but most of the time your eyes would wander around your studio and then you'd yeah, look I'm, for a I'm, second. I'm not a, I'm not a, I don't like being in front of the camera. That's <laughs> not my thing. And why is that? Why, oh, why don't, don't you? I, just, you know, some, like, I, I have two daughters. One is like me really uncomfortable in front of a camera. And the other one is just um, 
she's meant like my, my mom was a model my ex-wife was a model so she has it in her blood and she certainly picked up those genes and she's just amazing in front of a camera like every frame is beautiful and my other daughter is the opposite of that and i probably you know she takes after me so I'm, I'm just not comfortable in front of a camera but i got through it mark later I'm very cognizant of, obviously, Americans in America, and that's why this show is called Watching America. But I'm incredibly intrigued and rewarded when I think about the persons that make the fabric of this nation, particularly persons who do important work, and you do important work. I am so grateful to you for presenting Jerry to me and millions of other viewers, and persons like Jerry, Sarah, for all of her complexity, uh, Kiara or Kelly, whichever you prefer, Sweet mm-hmm. Pea, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people more. You strike me as a person who is not at ease, perhaps with praise or being uh, lauded with uh, with recognition. But I hope that you will amend that for the next 10 seconds, as I say, that I think you are truly an artist and your life has purpose and meaning in its own right, but beyond that for what you do and what you're bringing to America's attention. Uh, We may not have an immediate panacea for what you portray and present to us, but indeed you do awaken things in us that otherwise should not have gone unawoken. And I want to thank you for that so much. It's been a delight talking to you, Mark, here on Watching America. Take care, sir, and God bless. Thank you, Alan. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Heather Mazzoni is chief of content, and Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I am the series creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.